0: hello thanks for listening to the total knee tips and pearls podcast this is adam rose and your host i'm a fellowship trained orthopedic surgeon who specializes in joint replacement in these episodes i'm going to share with you a lot of my tips and tricks and review classic articles and current implant designs thanks for tuning in and on with the show Hello, welcome back. This is Adam Rosen, and you're listening to the Total Need Tips and Pearls podcast. So today, I am happy to be sitting across from Dr. Cliff Caldwell. Um, We are here in La Jolla, California um, at the Scripps Clinic, and it is September 10th, 2021. um, And he has been uh, gracious enough to sit down and answer some of the questions that I can uh, pick his brain, and hopefully you'll get a lot of insight from his experience um, in our world And now we're sitting here. um, It's been over a year and a half of COVID. Um, We're both in masks. We're socially distant across the table. Um, What do you think of what's going on in the world right now with COVID? Because your son is on the front lines. He's an ER doctor.
1: Yeah, he's uh, a chair of uh, emergency medicine at uh, UC San Francisco. Um, They're on the line every day uh, in terms of both patient care, and then they're in the decision-making process of how we proceed with this. Um, This pandemic, that uh, in my opinion is going to continue for a long period of time.
0: Yeah, it's kind of unfortunate. I don't think any of us really expected this would go on this long. But you know, hopefully, I think now it's endemic, and we're just going to learn to deal with it. But things, hopefully, um, you know, get better. And you're a busy, busy person. So this morning, you were, you know, doing doing your uh, your work with the IRB and still staying involved, um, juggling lots and lots of hats. So that's a lot of the stuff that we're going to go into and all the research stuff. So. I was lucky enough to meet you um, through one of my other mentors, Dr. Paul Lotke, who got me to come out. It was 2004 when I first came out here to interview with you for a fellowship spot. Um, And I was lucky enough to get that spot. So I'm happy to say that I had you as a mentor. I then had you as a partner. Now I have you as a friend. Um, So I'm very, very happy to be able to call you all of those different parts. You've been very influential in my life. Most of the listeners, I think that are listening We'll know you and your name um, and your research and how instrumental you've been in this field of orthopedics. But for the listeners that are not familiar with you, I'm happy to be able to sit down. We're going to share all of your accomplishments and all of your insights for the listeners. You've been a leading force in orthopedics for decades. You've trained numerous doctors, received multiple awards, produced a ton of research and helped thousands and thousands of patients. So I think I speak for many people when I say thank you for all of that. Briefly, uh, you were born in Michigan, you graduated from Williams College, um, you went to medical school at University of Michigan, where you also did your internship, and then you did your residency at HSS from 1964 to 1967. What was your residency like back then?
1: Well, this was a, this was a time frame when things were changing in orthopedics. Up till that time, uh, a, a lot of it concentrated on children's orthopedics. Um, scoliosis was a huge part of our practice uh club foot deformities a lot of it was children's and then a lot of it was infections Um, because we really didn't have good treatment protocols for the most common disease we treat now Um, particularly arthritis we actually depended upon internists and rheumatologists to take care of most of that although we got involved as well because nobody treated it well Uh, Nothing that we tried really worked very satisfactory. Early operations were um, partially successful at best. Uh, I did participate in those. Uh, for instance, in hip it would be cup arthroplasty. Uh, we did a lot of high tibial osteotomies for which patients got moderate relief, and we were delving and trying to get the patient somewhat better, even though these were large operations. Um, our success rate in terms of overall success was was not very, not not successful in particular today's standard. We had uh, for cup arthroplasty, which was one of the earliest operations for degenerative arthritis of the hip, in which we just covered the femoral head with Vitalium cup. Um, then at five years, the, the success rate was 40 percent. Mm-hmm. So it really, you, you were dealing with patients preoperatively as well as postoperatively that were not doing well. Um, and so during that period of time began the discoveries of procedures, surgical procedures that were much more effective. And so I was on the sidelines as a resident in training uh, when they did the first total hips and total knees at special surgery. So, I mean, yes, I I wasn't paramount in making these decisions who got them or who didn't, and which procedures I got. I just was there as a resident, watching, learning, and realizing that this was in a transition period. Yeah, I mean, um, you
0: saw all those procedures that now, you know, people almost take for granted and have just changed people's lives worldwide.
1: Unbelievable. I do not, I mean, I'm not operating now, as you know. Uh, but the finality of my practice, I wasn't doing one surgical procedure that I learned to do in residency. Wow. Not a single one.
0: So it really is lifelong learning.
1: It was lifelong learning. And, it, and in front of my eyes, the, the results dramatically improved. We went from a subspecialty for which um, we were looking, basically the rest of the Medical profession looked down upon us because we had so little to offer, and we've thought about having little in the way of brains, a lot in brawn, because we reduce fractures and things of that nature. But this changed in my career to one of the most exciting professions that ever has existed.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's. uh, I think all of us, you know, are, are really happy to be able to do this. I mean, even in this this age of of. Electronic medical records and COVID where people are distraught with the stuff around them. You know, I don't meet an orthopedic surgeon that still doesn't say I love doing what I do, taking care of patients and operating. And I'll actually, we'll we'll get to that in a little bit because I have have a couple little um, things that will fit right along with exactly um, what you said there. But, you know, if we go on, so after residency, um, you did fellowship training at L.A. County and then also two years in the Air Force. How different was that and what sort of things did you learn there?
1: Well, um, I want to backtrack uh, a little bit because we had a program um, that was made available through the military. This was during the Vietnam crisis. And if you chose to, to give two years to your country in the way of the military, they let you finish any amount of training that you wanted to do. So in other words, if you wanted to do one fellowship, if you wanted to do seven fellowships, they were fine. Then you are going to take your two years and serve uh, sort of in the military, uh, we didn't, we weren't on the line. We were doing medical work, orthopedic work. So, my fellowship at LA County was designed around the fact that they appointed me to lead a airvac hospital back here in the United States gotcha. in the Air Force to take care of people who were severely injured in Vietnam, came back for the reconstructive surgery, mm-hmm. and I was asked to to lead one of these hospitals. And uh, when I informed the Air Force, uh, my training in special surgery didn't include trauma. We didn't do trauma. It was all reconstructive hospital. And so I was not prepared to do that. And uh, they suggested that my preparation was all they're gonna get. So <laughs> so I said, well, if I can get a fellowship out at LA County to at least get into the area of taking care of some severely um, injured patients, at least compared to what we saw at special surgery then. And they said, fine. So uh, J. Paul Harvey, who had been an unbelievable uh, teacher at special surgery and then went on to lead the LA uh, program, uh, was very kind to take me on. It was a super fellowship in terms of they just let me do this severe trauma Mm -hmm. um, so that I got prepared to at least see some of these patients who were The destruction of the uh, the war weapons is a whole different category, and and I wasn't even prepared after special surgery or after uh, L.A. County to really understand those kind of injuries.
0: Yeah, I mean, so, you know, and, uh, you know, for our listeners, one of our other senior partners, Dr. Hamer, also, you know, was involved in the Vietnam War also, and and some of the other younger doctors that I know now that, you know, are, are in the military that have taken care of some of these injuries. I mean, it's even more different now, but so I hear it's like nothing good comes of war, but like the one thing that does benefit people in the future, though, is the training it is incredible because you never see that amount of destruction, and we have ways to treat it to hopefully help some of those that are injured. But it's just, you know, from what I hear, just horrible things to see over and over again.
1: But your point is really well taken, is that the only people that will win in a war are the physicians who are able to improve their techniques and improve the care of the patient's you mentioned Dr. Hamer he actually was on the line I mean he he was not being a, an orthopedic surgeon he was taking care of patients who were injured you right, right included that I did not do that I was back in the states uh, very safe and taking care of of severely injured patients after they had their primary care and then their secondary care either in Guam or Okinawa and then I just was there for the third level of care these Young men came, they're almost all young men, came back really well taken care of. Mm. They were taken care of well uh, at the time of injury. They were taken care of well in the secondary. By the time they got back to us, the wounds were excellent. They were almost all in outriggers. Most of the ones that came back were orthopedic patients. If you got hit in the head or the chest, you you died. and You came back in a bag. I didn't see those patients. they, They didn't come to us ones that came to us were Airvac out and most of North Peaks because they lived. Yeah. But these these were severely injured people.
0: Yeah, yeah, the bad, bad injuries that you just wish never see anybody go through.
1: Yeah, the the caliber of the rifles, A K forty sevens and M sixteen rifles, were such that they're war weapons. I mean they're designed to kill as many people as quickly as you can.
0: Yeah. I'll probably have to sit down and talk to Dr. Hamer sometime because I know, it, being in the operating room, um, you know, some of the stories he's told me just about the invention of the water pick and right. and how and how much that helped debride these horribly contaminated wounds. Um, that is sort of taken gra- for granted now in, in all operating rooms. Everybody's using the pulse lavage.
1: No, he was part of that that development. Right. Um, the outriggers were, were improved dramatically during that period of time, and Israel participated in that during their. Number of wars uh, so outriggers, in terms of being able to manage wounds, when we started, we had everybody in a cast, and you worked through a hole in the cast to treat these wounds and compared to once we could use the outriggers, the cure of the wound just improved dramatically,
0: so much better yeah oh yeah well, so after all of that, um you know then you made your way down south here to La Jolla, so green Hospital first opened here. 1978, um, and the clinic was prior to that down on Prospect Street in La Jolla. What was that like in getting the first fellow as part of the program here? I mean, it was a huge transition period.
1: Well, yeah, let's let's back it up a bit. Uh, When I left the military in 1970, I joined a surgeon here in private practice at the local community hospital who had moved from down the village of La Jolla up onto what we call the hill. So Scripture Memorial Hospital was built uh, separate from the clinic. Mm -hmm. And so I joined that staff. They had a surgical staff there, general surgeons, ENT, ophthalmologists, and I joined with partnered with another surgeon. So we had a joint practice. And then we had three other orthopedists join us. So over the next seven years, we had a practice of five different guys. Okay. Uh, Very busy. Um, A lot of it was trauma. We were just then getting into the more sophisticated um, reconstructive surgery. Um, Arthroscopy was just coming to be, which is another one of the procedures I never trained to do originally, but then had to back up and go out and get training from, in my case, it was Lanny Johnson, one of the primary uh, arthroscopists out in East Lansing, Michigan, just a, a, a brilliant surgeon and a personality that was interesting to deal with, um, uh, really. And, and he's still actually viable and here in San Diego and uh, occasionally uses our laboratory.
0: Oh, that's great. I yeah. didn't know that.
1: Yeah, the, the original work in that was done in, in Japan with Watanabe, but those f- people who first went and studied with Watanabe then came back and then they taught the procedures here, for which I went on and spent time with Lanny Johnson in East Lansing. So.
0: Oh, excellent, excellent. And then, and then, because you you were doing surgery down the street here at Memorial when they decided to say, "Hey, we can have our own hospital as part of the clinic."
1: Right. Then Scripps Clinic decided to because they were expanding and they decided to add surgical services uh, to uh, to that medical group. So it was all brand new. They brought uh, uh, Dr. Hollenbeck. George Hollenbeck from the Mayo Clinic, but by this time he was the chief of surgery at Alabama, uh, out to, to lead a search for different subspecialties to start a surgical division of Scripps Clinic. Okay, and that happened in 1977. And there was competition for, for that opportunity. Um, there were actually two people who were uh, eminently more qualified than I was for the job uh one of them who had been my mentor a special surgeon went on to get his PhD in immunology and then went on to met, uh, to take over Medawar's lab uh, the Nobel laureate in immunology in in London uh, can, can you imagine when a laboratory depends upon an orthopedic surgeon to <laughs> run a a lab that won the Nobel prize right so and who was that that was uh Gene Lance okay uh, a superstar special surgery, and when he came off all that, he decided. At the last minute, he was applying for this job at at Scripps, and he's a very good friend. And I get a phone call from him. He said, "I've, I've had it with academic medicine. I don't want to do with it anymore. I want to go and practice in Hawaii," <laughs> and that's where he went. Wow! Took his name off the roster of being, but he was. I mean, when you talk about perfectly qualified person, and then there was a physician up at uh, at Irvine who was changing jobs, and he had good credentials and chose. Well, he didn't choose. He had a cardiac issue during his potential transition. So the first two candidates, top candidates, kind of got disqualified themselves. So I got the opportunity to, to start that division.
0: Oh, that's great. Yeah, so, they, so number three, but they saved the best for last. So, <laughs> and you made a, it just you made a lasting impression on the world from here.
1: Well, it was a wonderful opportunity. It was one of those unique things that just happened, as nobody can, can tell you that's going to happen. But yeah, for me, it was an ideal opportunity.
0: That's great. You know, from that point, I mean, you had a lot of big roles. President of the Western Orthopedic Association 1988, president of the Knee Society 2001, president of AUKUS 2003, and a whole bunch of other leadership roles. What sort of things did you learn from being in those leadership positions?
2: Well,
1: the, the leadership roles come later. I mean, you have to get to that point. Um, and, and that transition was the exciting part. It's not the, the the leadership is interesting in trying to get accomplished large tasks across large populations in, in terms of large populations of orthopedia. So you have to have gained the respect of people along the way if you're going to have any influence whatsoever. So it's the process before you get to that uh, area is, is where the interesting area came from. Because the real excitement for my I mean, personally, was, uh, I became dissatisfied in just the private practice of, of course, Beaks. Mm-hmm. Um I didn't think we followed our patients well. And we took very good care of them, the people that I had with us over in Scripps Hospital, excellent surgeons, outstanding surgeons. But we had no way to follow the patients. We had no idea where they were in one year, six months, two years, five years. And we had, in that setting, really no teaching opportunities. Most of us volunteered to go down to the university to teach with the resident staff and help them. But that was not very efficient use of your time. A lot of driving back and forth. You didn't know the patients. The residents were, you know, unknown to you. So it wasn't a uh, highly satisfactory situation. So we thought two things, or I thought two things in my prior practice. I learned you need to have opportunity to teaching Mm -hmm. because you don't want the things that you've learned to be just go away as soon as you go away. Right. And the second thing is you needed some f- to figure out how to follow up these patients. Mm-hmm. Once these operations were done, and we got five-year follow-ups and 10-year follow-ups and success rates out there, you need to know that. If you don't know that, if you just do the operation and then five years later did that patient come back and have somebody else do them, or how many did you redo, and what was the failure mode, and why did they fail, uh, can you fix that in the future, so that was the exciting part of starting a, a whole new program. Yes,
0: yeah, so for those docs that never see their patients back ever, they think, I have a 100% success rate. But, you know, having the registry and having that captured data allows you to really know what works, what doesn't work, what's going well, and what needs to be changed. And Because you started collecting data right from the get-go around here.
1: Right, because that was one of the things that I missed when I realized that we were not gathering that data we had no real idea how our long-term success is. And early on, we made some significant errors. And what I learned that if you're going to make an error, figure it out soon. Um, one of our early errors was using a titanium head in what's called a DF-80 mm-hmm. um, total hip procedure. This was developed a special surgery. And no one realized that the wear on titanium was going to be as significant as, as, significant as it was, and so some people were using cobalt chrome and other people were using um, uh, titanium, and those of us who used titanium, was me. We we're failing early. Mm. Uh, the DF80 had eight percent failure rate one year, wow. so you, you you need to get on top of that and figure out okay, what happened here? What why are mine failing and the person down the street is not failing? Right. And, 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 and so that was also the, one of the exciting parts of starting the registry. Um, so we gained on that. And I also learned that I'm not going to put anything in anybody's body until I've tested it one way or another. So that was the reason to start the laboratory.
0: Got okay, yeah. So it all kind of went down that, that thought process of how do I make sure that I'm doing the right thing and the right person with the right implant. Correct. Because, I mean, you were instrumental in that. I mean, here, I forget now, I know when we sit down with Julie, we talk, but I think now we have, I know, it's tens of thousands, 30 or 40,000 patients in the database here.
1: We have over 40,000 joint replacements. Yeah, just here at the clinic. Just here at the clinic.
0: You were involved early with the California Registry and then the American Joint Registry. I mean, I know that you've always been a big proponent for registry because the U.S. has been so far behind. All of these other countries that have these great registries for their entire nation, Do you think that's going to help us in the years to come now that we're capturing that data?
1: Well, it it should help us. I mean, the whole design of that is to, to, it's not to say that somebody's a better surgeon or not. It's to find early failure modes. And so if you have a registry, it's going to show up very quickly if, for instance, one implant has a lesser lesser life expectancy. Mm -hmm. So you learn it much sooner. You don't have to go through the learning curve and have more people suffer when they don't need to do it. So there's still a difference in quality of implants and how you do this operation. Uh, Although at this point in time, we're getting in total joint replacements, particularly hip and knee, to a point where the results are pretty good for an awful long period of time. So the next step forward, uh, we hope, is going to be biologic. um, That may or may never come to be um, because it's been a tough nut to crack, uh, we have spent now 12 years in a very serious laboratory effort and we're not ready for prime time. Um, you know, people say, oh, well, let's try this and try that. We've tried literally every single thing in the lab that's possible to try. There are people all over the world trying to do the same thing, is to replace the mechanical tools that we're now using with biological tools. And on the other hand, the mechanical tools we're using are absolutely wonderful right they're good they yeah are so
0: good. we'll get into that later i mean I and mean, we can even talk about it now because you and dr delima you've received the serum grant i mean you're you're working on stem cell research you know i keep you know hearing little bits of you know what you guys are doing and coming along but then on the flip side in the real world you got patients that are going to these regenerative places and for five eight thousand dollars having stem cells injected into their arthritic knees what do, you, what do you think of that? Is it a safe thing to do? Should those doctors not be allowed to do those procedures?
1: Well, now you're now you're asking some ethical questions, which really get quite deep, and I'm I'm trying to avoid those. But um, you've taken care of patients long enough to know that they none of them want to have large surgery, right? Okay, they're smart enough to know that that's not a great idea. To have metals and plastics and cements put into their body, okay? so they're always looking for something that's more conservative, more possible without having to go a surgical procedure. And that happened in my day. It's going to happen in it's happening in your day, and it's going to happen forever. Mm-hmm. The people are going to look outside of the normal trend in orthopedics or in medicine in general for the cure. Period. Some so
0: alternative.
2: The
1: alternative. You can't stop that. Okay. You can stop part of it if it's really not done professionally. Mm-hmm. So that if a person's told we don't have really good data on this, it's still experimental, we can't guarantee any of it. And in my case, I would say if you're going to do that, you ought to do it for a very low cost mm-hmm. because you don't want to get money into the issue of why you're treating the patient. Right. you 're making money off of it, so if you 're willing to say, "I really want to try stem cells in patients it 's not very risky, and i 'll do it for nothing or a very small amount just to cover my costs but if you 're doing it as a money making procedure there 's very little data to back up that has any benefit whatsoever
0: right now and, and you 're you know closer than most people looking at stem cells, so the most common question I get from patients every day though is should I wait? Should I not have my knee replacement? How soon will that type of stuff be available? You know, a year, a decade? Do you think it's 20 years or longer?
1: I don't think there's any way to, to, to figure that out. I really don't. I mean, we have some things going on in the laboratory right now that are so exciting that it could happen very soon. Hmm. But it hasn't happened, and I can't guarantee it will happen. So when somebody says, when is this going to happen? I say, just at the right time. Yeah. And, and maybe that's never. Right. I mean, it's, I can't guarantee you that biologics are ever going to replace the quality we can do right now with a standard joint replacement.
0: Yeah, so it's just a hopeful and maybe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah
1: hope springs eternal. Yeah. <laughs> I like to use this expression that I think I heard somewhere is, but hope is not a plan.
0: Yeah. That works, <laughs> right? So,
1: if you have a resident or a fellow in training, and they say, "I hope this will happen," then you say, "That's fine," but that's not a plan of action.
0: Yeah, it's not a plan. Well, you know, it's funny. It's funny that you bring that up because that one I haven't heard. And, you know, and I was I was going to actually ask you a couple of these um, later because I was going to see actually if there were any more. But I'm not sure if you know, but you know, we always talked about. There was a bunch of caldwell you know, that floated around here. And, you know, we would enter a patient's room in the morning on rounds, and it was always, you know, good, 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 good morning. Um, and then if we put the acetabular screws in, and they weren't flush, and they were crooked, you know, he always let us know they were put in cattywampus. Um, occasionally, the weird thing would happen in the operating room, and we'd hear from you, know, that you'd been to seven county fairs, and you'd never seen anything like that before. And in the OR, though, you would always say, you'd look around at the end of the case and say, what in the world could be better than this. I mean, you really loved what you did there. Uh, any other, you know, little caldwell that I left out there?
1: Well, no. You, uh, as everyone knows who's been in the operating room, the nurses have, um, have names for the surgeons. These are not names that they give directly to the surgeons, but that's who they talk about when they have their lunch. And they have, so everyone has their little niche. Well, uh, the resident to tell you what you're actually called behind <laughs> your back. So I finally found out what my niche was, which was nitpicker. <laughs> <laughs> because the one that you didn't quote is that I think if, in the operating room, you should do it the same way every time. Yeah. Now, when you change, that's fine. But you don't want to be changing in the middle of a procedure which you know is already successful. You want to be prepared to do it the same way every time and end up at the end of the operation with being very proud of what you ended up doing. Yeah, might take you longer one day. may take you shorter one day. maybe may be easier one day. But at the end of the procedure, you ought to be really proud of what you did.
0: Yeah. I mean, And it, it totally makes sense. I mean, I learned so much of that from you. And when I spent time with Dr. Booth, I mean, and it's in, in my operating room, I mean, they, they know when they come in and train and the, and the techs that work, you know, it's the same way every time. And I try to explain because we may deviate when there is something out of the ordinary and the algorithm has to go that way, but it prevents you missing something like in a knee, just, you know, flipping around the cutting sequence and you forget to look at the posterior condyles and take off the osteophytes. But if you can you know, replicate that. Everybody knows the steps we talk about. It's the dance, right? The dance of everybody knows which retractors go where and when, and it makes no one move faster, but it makes the surgery more efficient.
1: Yeah. And and it's a team effort. What you learn very early is that if you can develop a good team around you, you are only the conductor. Mm -hmm. You're not the only person there, and you're not the only one that makes a difference. So having a team that's organized around doing these procedures. So the specialization issue, not only in orthopedics, which I think at this point in time, I think joint surgeons should be doing joints and spine surgeons should be doing spines because there's enough of us and there's enough specialization that that's what's happened in medicine. It happened, my father was in medicine and he was a general surgeon and he did neurosurgery, he did orthopedics, he did chest medicine, Mm. vascular surgery. Everything. And everything, okay, and then that subspecialized into orthopedics and urology and neurosurgery and cardiac uh, cardiac surgery, and then at the, at some point in time that subspecialized, and now they're joint surgeons and they're hand surgeons and, mm-hmm. and so that was another issue that I had early on realizing that that I was trained to do everything, mm-hmm. but I couldn't keep up. I couldn't keep up with all the literature. I'm doing everything. I couldn't keep up on the surgical procedures. If I was only going to do one or two spine cases a year, you can't. You you can't do a good job doing one or two a year. Right, and the Every technology athlete is not so fast. That. You can't. Yeah, you can't be a great athlete and only participate twice a year. Mm-hmm. So so it, that's just happened. And 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 I think one of our advantages at at Scripps was that we recognized that early. And that we didn't take on anybody who wouldn't, wasn't going to be a specialist, who so wasn't interested in either doing joints or hands, if they wanted to do hands. We want somebody in hands who really, really wants to do hands. Right.
0: I mean, you were a big proponent of that early on. I mean, even now, you know, we have patients that see six of us, but they see one of us through the hand and one for their hip and one for their back and one for their shoulder. So we can all do it, but we know that our partners do it better and well because they do it all the time.
1: They do it all the time. And and most of this you can get away with patients. Patients, I actually like to have one doctor. Mm -hmm. They still want their whole family doctor. But if you do it in such a way as to say, this gentleman down two states from me, Really does it better than I do. Yeah. you'll really like him, and you'll get it better, and then they'll do it,
0: and they're happy. Yeah,
1: but you have to be able to say to them, he can do it better than I can do it, and for an orthopedist, that's difficult. Right,
2: yeah, I think for <laughs>
0: most people, you know, admitting that someone's better than them in anything is hard, but right. but but it is important. It's yeah. important to you know do the right thing for the patient. We've talked about um, you know all the all the leadership roles and things like that. You know, as far as awards. You know, I just—I have to say, I mean, it's, it's incredible the numbers of awards that you've received. I mean, just briefly a couple for the listeners if they're not aware. Knee Society Award, 1995, for efficacy and safety of an The Nicholas Andre Award in 97 for thromboembolic disease. Kappa Delta Award in 04 for cartilage injury and chondrocyte apoptosis. The Lifetime Achievement Award in 09 by the International Society of Technology and Arthroplasty. Um, the Andre award in 2001 for the lab and any in vivo forces and the achievement award in 2017 from the Academy. I mean, that's just a few of them. So I'm I'm curious um, which of those, and and I'm I'm guessing it's the Kappa Delta, but which of those are the ones that you're most um, happy about and, and if you could even tell some of the listeners, I'm not sure they all know about the ENI. Um, I talked to a lot of people, and some of the younger generation—they're not even aware of the ENI and, and what you did and learned from the ENI.
1: Well, okay, let's start at the ENI. Um, it's an electronic knee in which the, we put uh, devices inside the implant in order to look at forces, pressures of daily activities and sport activities, because that's one of the big questions, even for orthopedists now, is when your patient asks, what can I do after I've had my procedure? Can I run a marathon? And can I go swimming? Can I do this or do that? And it turns out that if you listen to what orthopedics tell their patients, orthopedic surgeons tell their patients, it's all over the map. It's all over the map. one will tell them you can ski, but you can't do black diamonds. Mm-hmm. One of them says you can, you know, you you can run, but you can only run a quarter mile, and and they have all sorts of different ideas because nobody knows. Mm-hmm. No one's figured out whether you do this one activity and repeat it whether that's going to wear your knee out sooner. So we were very concerned and wanted to have the surgeon across the country be able, at least to be able to tell their patient, if you do this activity, these are the forces you're going to put across the knee Right. We can't tell you for sure it's going to wear out sooner, but we can tell you what the forces are going to be. Because before that, do- it
0: was a lot of the knee society just said, don't kneel, you can play singles, tennis, not doubles, or, you know, and, or vice versa. <laughs> you know, but there wasn't data behind those decisions. None
1: of them. Yeah. And they were all over the board. Mm-hmm. I mean, you went to one doctor, and you got one piece of advice, and you went to another doctor, a good doctor, and you got another piece of advice because they were just making it up. Right? They had no way. So we were really interested in that. And then I had Daryl DeLima, uh, orthopedic surgeon from India, who came over originally to try to do a residency in orthopedics here, repeat his whole orthopedic residency program, mm-hmm. but decided after two years in our lab to to change his focus and go into research. Mm-hmm which he did originally in mechanics and then went on to get his PhD at UCSD in bioengineering and now has the capabilities of doing biology as well as, as mechanical things. I mean, without him, this wouldn't have happened. So we really should we could be interviewing him as far as how this came to be. Yeah, he's, he's on the list. He'll, okay. be, he'll be up next. <laughs> okay. Well, um, the idea came from clinical manifestation. We couldn't answer this question now that I said to him, we've got to be able to do this. Well, people had done it in the hip before. Bill Harris in, mm-hmm. uh, at the Massachusetts General Hospital had put transducers into a Austin Moore prosthesis for a fracture mm-hmm. uh, and been able to identify the forces across the hip joint uh, during activities, no sport activities, but some activities of daily living. Uh, they were fairly crude because it was early on; mm-hmm. uh, that technology was uh, just in its infancy. So, they they were the first ones to break through. Okay. They had a fair amount of real estate because Austin Moore was a large head, and you and for the knee we had not much real estate, so right. we didn't have much room to put this thing in. So, as we started to design it, we had a design that we're going to power it with batteries. Well, batteries have a half life, and then you also if you put batteries into a human being and expect it to stay there any length of time, you got to realize that there could potentially things go wrong with a battery. Mm-hmm. So during that time frame, it went from powering with a battery to power from a radio frequency from outside. So we had a, developed a power source that we had embedded into the tibial implant, mm-hmm. and then we would power it with a radio wave, turn it on, turn it off like a... Um, a l- light switch mm-hmm. so you could test people and while they're testing it was on and then when you're through testing them, they turned it off yeah so that took a, n- a number of years developing that we had a catastrophe after catastrophe and, and you, you do that in development all the time just when you think you're you got it made something goes wrong it always goes wrong for a reason you never thought of.
0: Right, the things you can't predict.
1: Okay. They call it the unk-unk rule. Hmm. That's what engineers call it. And if you haven't heard that before, it's the unknowns of the unknown.
0: Ah, makes sense.
1: If you think about it, you won't fail that way because you've already thought about it. It's hmm. You're going to fail some way that you didn't think about. It. Our first failure rates were in the laboratory We never, <clears throat> before we even got close to putting it into a patient. Um... All the engineers thought if it was going to fail, it would fail in shear, mm. that this would shear and therefore fail. Um, so we put it under 6,000 pounds of shear, and it didn't fail. Mm. So we thought we were
0: we home the free.
1: And so when we started the testing in a lab, because you have to do that, you have to put them through millions of cycles like they do... For the regular implant that you put in, they've done millions of cycles on it, to be sure. Right. Um, it didn't fail in shear. It, 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 it failed in fatigue. Hmm. So it failed in a different mode after just one and a half million cycles, which is totally wow. inadequate to put into a human being. So we had to start all over again. Wow. And new design, et cetera, et cetera. But during that period of time, we were able to get away from batteries, so it was helpful in the long run. Gotcha. Because th- those patients got tested. Actually... We put this into four people.
0: I remember because I was able to help with one of the last ones. Oh, did you? And that um, yeah, was with Jerry. Okay. And uh, yeah, it, it was exciting. I remember it, I, I wasn't aware of all the trials and tribulations, I think, that led up to that. It was, you know, hey, there was this custom design and I got to see it put in. But I do remember, you know, having, you know, all the techs and the guys, they'd be on their knees with the coils around the knee when they were walking through the lab to get the test. It was <laughs> It was a process.
1: Oh, it was a great process. And the four patients that we did were just marvelous people because they, I mean, were true guinea pigs. I and mean, we had to tell them that this had never been put into a human being before. Yeah, And they were, you know, they, were gonna, they needed a total knee replacement. Mm-hmm. And they were willing to tackle these four. And then the whole process of how you get approval to do that to the FDA. And then there's custom implant kind of things that... So, there's all sorts of regulatory problems that you have to go through to be able to do this. These four patients did it, and they then provided uh, information to the public and to every orthopedic surgeon in the world for years and years and years. Those have been in now 25
2: years. Wow. Yeah, that's incredible.
1: And and three of them are still alive. Hmm. Uh, One died with his implant in place. We were able to retrieve the implant. and be able to use that back in the laboratory again to test it. But I mean, we've done testing all over the United States. Um, put these people on airplanes and go here and there and everywhere. Uh, we worked with NASA to develop exercise programs in space. Mm. Uh, with the NFL in terms of n- n- new sod for for play to try to decrease knee injuries. Wow. I mean, it's and these these four patients just get on an airplane and go and go through all this testing and do all what we ask them to do. And yeah, all the further
0: down. science. Because yeah, if I remember, I mean, all of them had some type of background, either engineer or therapist. They all had some type of, right. yeah, some sort of hold into the science world. Um, but I thought, one of the things I, was, I remember, and I forget which patient did it, but it was the gait lab up at Berkeley with orthotics. And a lot of people, oh, knee pain and orthotics. And if I remember correctly, you guys were not able to show any difference in the forces in the knee in the gate lab with the use of different orthotics?
1: Well, until we made the uh, orthotics so extreme that you couldn't really use it. In other words, it was so extreme in the foot that it made the foot uncomfortable. So it didn't, before we could unload the knee joint in any meaningful manner, which is the same thing we learned about knee braces. Um, Knee braces, if they work, do not unload because you just don't have enough control in terms of the forces going through the knee joint with anything that's external. Gotcha. Now, if you want to put pins in people's (laughs) braces, you may be able to do it, but otherwise you're working through soft tissue. Right. So you can't unload. Do braces work? Sure, in some people's hands they work, but it's not because they unload. We never were able to do that. Everybody that we could unload uh, hurt the, the collateral ligament to such a degree they couldn't wear them.
0: Just because uh, the excessive force you had to put right, we the had joint. to
1: put enough force on it to to try to unload, let's say the medial joint or lateral joint. We had to put enough force on it that the patient couldn't tolerate. It. Yeah, he wow. said, "You know, I can't, I can't wear this thing. It hurts." Yeah.
0: And that's such a common thing. I mean, the brace market is huge. I mean, I get that every single day where patients, you know, what about the brace? I always love the person that walks in with the Nordstrom's bag and they got the one with the magnets and the one with the hinges and the one with the hole and the one with the straps. You know, you tell me, if you don't wear the brace, like it's not for a fracture or ligament rupture, you're not making your knee worse. But, you know, whether or not it's warmth or compression or proprioception or placebo, like if you feel better wearing the brace, wear it. Right. But you're not going to harm yourself by not wearing it for arthritis.
1: No. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's one of the things we were able to show you can't change the forces, but you can. It's okay to say if this helps you. If you wear something in your shoe and your knee pain it feels better, do it. Yeah.
0: Knock yourself out. Yeah, yeah, right.
1: Do it. and you know, So, I mean, that's one of the, the, the arts of it. Is, this is not all science. It's mm-hmm. uh, art as well as science. And these are patients. It's their bodies, and it's their lives. It's not our lives.
0: The art of medicine. We just get to practice on them, right? Right. The practice of medicine. We do. Now, you know, as far as (laughs) research, I mean, you guys have done so much research. Um, You know, if we talk tribology, um, because you were involved early on with some of the initial ceramic on ceramics— you know about the issues, and everyone's aware now of squeaking. You know, we saw the ceramic failures from some of the earlier designs, and then even the horrible metal on metal failures. So, there's a lot of information that we've gleaned from, you know, poly to ceramic to metals. If you had your hip done today, what bearing would you want?
1: Well, I, I think the bearing issue now is at a point where it's sort of moot. I think we're arguing about things that no longer are. Terribly important. I would probably have a ceramic on one of the new plastics. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's the most reliable. But in France, they're still doing ceramic on ceramic, which is the best wearing material. We we just didn't have our design as well as theirs. Right. You know, I mean, I was a big part of that. I, I I love the wear characteristics of ceramic on ceramic, and I thought this the plastics were going bad. But at the same time, that we went to ceramic on ceramic. They improved the plastics. Right. So while uh, we were going one direction. The plastics people go in another direction and they they won the battle. Yeah,
0: it improved. And that's why I always felt was like the, the issue with metal on metal is the, the metal on metal, the idea was creeping forward and it didn't come to availability until the plastics were already improved. So you put them in and then we saw these horrible failures. But the ceramics on ceramics that I've revised for other reasons, I mean, it is amazing how normal the tissue looks. You go in, it almost looks like the day that you initially put it in. It's so biologically inert but yeah the plastics are so good today i mean i think almost all um and 99 percent of people i talk to it's ceramic on poly ceramic on poly ceramic on poly
1: right but if you used a cobalt chrome a little alloy for the head the results are so similar. It's now, I, I don't think you can show much difference.
0: No, I mean, it's, you know, the wear has gotten so much better. I think the big thing is now that the whole idea of even trunnionosis, where, you know, you wonder how mm-hmm. many of, we saw the metal on metal articulation failures, but, you know, you wonder how many of those hips that, you know, years ago were just not as perfect as all the other hips, you know, and how many of them had some mild trunnionosis that we just didn't know about. So nobody thought of looking for it.
1: Yeah, the quality of the trunnion is, is, is certainly one of the issues today. Mm-hmm. That has to be perfect right. to, to not get trunnionosis. Yeah. yeah. But it's. what definitely... we're expecting for a 25, 30 year follow up is, is not unquestionable now. Which is the other thing that if you can trace your patients out and they're doing well 25 years, and you're, you're, we we're still averaging an age category that's in the high 60s. We're doing younger people, but we're doing older people. You guys are doing it, uh, and you our average. The last time we checked, our register it was still sixty-seven years.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think just, yeah, just addition the addition of ninety-year-olds
1: and some forty-year-olds. Right. We throw them all together, and the average comes out sixty-seven. The big series in the United States that you really respect, Iowa studies, mm-hmm. our studies that went on and on for twenty-five years. Average life. When we do them 67 years, 67 years. Well, if you take a 67 year and put them on 25 years, Right. 60% of them are dead. Right. And if they died with their implant in place, that's that's what your whole goal was.
0: Yeah, you hopefully never set eyes on this ever again. And, it, and it's so nice because, you know, it's funny because people still ask, you know, well, should I wait? Is there something better coming? It's like, you know, I buy anything online at the store, you know, at the car lot that in 20 years with no maintenance is still going to be working probably just fine. I mean, it's hard to find any, anything anywhere in the world that works that good. But yeah, yeah, people still want something better. Right. And then we run into the issue of new and improved isn't new and improved until it's old and improved, because we've unfortunately had all those failures. Something new technology-wise comes out, and then we shortly thereafter find out it didn't work the way that it was supposed to work.
1: Well, that's because there's three categories of people who are all interested in new. The manufacturer isn't interested in new because he can't sell old product, and Mm -hmm. he knows that. In his field, you can't sell old product. Right. Okay. So the industry is into new. The surgeon is into new because he doesn't want to be left behind. He Mm -hmm. doesn't want to be thought of as, oh, he isn't at the cutting edge. (laughs) And the patient wants something new. Right. Because they think new is better. So you got three groups, all involved in the decision making process, all who want something new. It's a, a continuous work to keep people from doing
0: that. Yeah. It's scary. To say,
1: don't go for something new until it's proven.
0: Yeah, so I've always said, you know, I never want to be the first and I don't want to be the last. And it's hard because you do want to be on the cutting edge if it's going to be something great. But you, you can't predict if it's going to be this great success in two years or five years. And we, we want that 10-year, 15, 20-year data. And most
1: of the time, new recently has not been good. No. I so, you
0: know some of those old, the, some of those studies that have come out looking at new technology and just the percentage of revisions with a lot of the new technology. I mean, you know, modular necks, great in theory, didn't work so well. Metal and metal, great in theory, didn't work so well. You know, all this. So,
1: ceramic on ceramic, good in theory, didn't te- work so well. Yes,
0: squeaking and, and it yeah. was interesting though. I mean, you know, because you know, I saw like you. I mean, here just Americans hated the noise. You talk to the Europeans and they think, oh, well, it didn't break. It didn't fail. It didn't dislocate. I can do everything with it. Why are you going to revise it? Because it makes noise. You know, they they just have a totally different mindset than we do or our patients. But yeah, that that noise led a lot of patients to have revisions.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Larry Siddell, one of the great surgeons in France who really perfected Mm -hmm. ceramic on ceramic, says, you know, American people are different. Yeah. Said that, you know, they can't, if, if we get rid of all their pain and they can do everything they want to do the rest of their lives, they don't care if there's a noise or not. Okay, but your patients are different. And right. that's true. They don't like the noise.
0: No, they hated the noise. They hated the noise. Yeah. The ones
1: who didn't get a problem, they are absolutely delighted. They're now out at 30 years now.
0: Yeah, and the they're great. Th- no, they're yeah. they're the, they're, the, they're the best. Yeah, best of the best. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So. And the good news around or the new uh, polys, as you suggest, will probably be that way in 30 years, too.
0: Yeah, I and mean, that's what we're hoping, at least in the yeah. initial data. I mean, you almost see no poly wear. I at mean, some of these 15 year follow ups now. I mean, it's just amazing. And yeah. no osteolysis like some of those initial early polys. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's hopefully the, the, the thing that solved at least one of the issues that we deal with. Um, so, I, you know, I remember. Um, at your retirement party, when you, when you did, we had the retirement party for you, you know, you stopped operating. Um, and I remember you were talking and thanking, you know, different people for different things. And, and one of the things I remember that you did say specifically, though, is you, you thanked your wife and well, for lots of things. But one of the things you thanked her for was waking up at five in the morning, every morning to make you breakfast before you went to work. And I remember all of the young docs like me. Our wives looked at us and gave us the dirtiest look of "No way! There is no way I'm waking up at 5 a.m. to make you guys breakfast." Um, but I mean, our families, when they are you know married to a surgeon and kids have a dad as a surgeon, I mean, it, it's a burden in a lot of ways. So you know, is there anything that you want to share about you know your family or you know even things for young surgeons that may have significant others or families that are earlier in their career that they could do to you know improve? the difficulties that come with being married to a surgeon.
1: Well, yeah, and I think every family has their own set of problems. That there's no, um, we laughingly said that because my dad was a surgeon and my mom got up and uh, got him a breakfast before he went to work because she thought that was, and that was her responsibility. That was part of being a really good wife and a family member. My wife just grew up with that same sort of idea, same thing, and uh, so we made it. I mean, obviously, it became a joke within. What which you didn't remember at that party that one of the people said, "You know what's going to happen when you leave? We're going to send one of the ladies said we're going to we're going to send our husbands over to you to and make them breakfast." <laughs> I do vaguely remember that. Well, anyway, it, 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 your question is really valid. I believe. My kids might say think something differently, that that even though you don't have as much time as with them as other professions, if you take the time that you do have and make it meaningful, I mean, it isn't that a father has to be there 24 hours a day. Yeah. I mean, that isn't a requirement to be a good dad. Mm-hmm. It's the time that you have, which is not as much, although young people are doing better with their time than we did. Right. Um, we started by being called 24 hours a day. That's what I when I went on practice. That's where I was. The first 18 days of my practice, I operated every night. Wow. Trauma, all trauma. Yeah. Because the older folks didn't want to do trauma anymore, so they come to the emergency room and they would say, "Would well, you want the young doc?" Or you know, and so they'd call me. <laughs> so and so yes, we didn't have as much time time with our kids, but if you spend quality time with them, that to me is the most critical issue. Now you're right; you can't do that once a year. Right. But I I th- think it's overplayed. Uh, although it's the suicide rate in, in physicians is not good, as to, as a stress that they are feeling. Yeah. Um, they still do that. I think that one of the real pushes towards emergency medicine is that they have they work like crazy my son works really hard when he's there
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then he's off
0: right it's the shift work of yeah because you know i think all of us as surgeons i mean you're not on but you still get the phone call you know your patient's in the er you know someone fell and there's a wound that's draining and you're you're there 24 7 7 days you're worried about
1: him all the time yeah. no i agree and they turn that off because they can't control that right they have this board. Every emergency room I go to now, they have a board of some sort. Either it's an electronic board or they write on it. And where this patient is in their workup and what's going to dispose of, how they're going to dispose of the patient, either yeah. go home or to the ICU or whatever they're going to do. And they, before they leave, they clear the board. Right. Okay. And when the board's cleared, they're done. They're done. Yeah. And then they can just walk off and spend their time with the kids or whatever. And, and, and that's easier than what we have to do. We have to plan it.
0: Right. Yeah. And that's always hard work because then, you know, and and then the emergencies come up. So, but I think it is true. I mean, it's the quality, not quantity. And there's always times I wish I had more time, but, you know, it's nice because I never feel like there's enough time, but every so often, you know, come, you know, birthday or a special event or, you know, some, you know, vacation and, you know, the kids will always sit down and go, you know, I'm really glad for when we did this, or they, they remember all of those things, the things that we did together. Uh, and and that you know at least lets me know that they know that I'm there that you know we care. Mm-hmm. It's but it's hard because you know our, our patients are like our family. You know we we care just as as much in some ways, you know for these patients that we operate on because it's also our responsibility and it's that I think that balance. You know I, I see I talked to a lot of the young surgeons in the beginning. It's the balance of too many patients, not enough patients. Home not home. You know you know at work's too hard. Home's too hard. But it's that never-ending balance of, you know, home and work. And, but the quality is the important thing.
1: Right. It's the same thing if you want to do research. And I, I, I really emphasize this. If you want to do some research, you've got to put away time. Mm-hmm. If you don't do that, if you wait for it to happen, it won't happen. Right. Uh, one of the great researchers here that I was my mentor was a fellow, Dale Daniel, who also mm-hmm. won the Capitol Award early in his career. A very serious researcher who took? he took a whole day, one day a week, in which he spent researching. He didn't see any patients. If the next day neighbor called and his mother just broke her hip, he did not do the surgical procedure. Yeah. He dedicated a certain amount of time towards his research, and he didn't infringe upon that. And it's the same thing about your kids. You're going to take time and don't infringe upon it. And if you can do that, you're going to be successful. And if you can't, you won't get any research done or you won't get your well, kids well taken care of. So that I advise to young surgeons is to d- identify what you want to do with your life and set aside time and do it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Important, important words. And uh, yeah, I, I find, I remember you telling me that story, you know, about him and, um, You know, I find now in this technological age, it's so hard because even if I come here, you know, the phone goes off, you know, the email goes off and I almost have to leave here um, and actually turn off the electronic stuff if I'm going to write. But even with the kids, I mean, I think some of the best trips that we've had are the trips where I've taken them off the grid. And, um, you know, because there is no phone. There's no way to contact you. Everybody here knows, hey, if there's a problem, he's not even in town. So someone else has to take care of it. And it's 100% time, you know, devoted to the kids and the family.
1: Now, if you can get away someplace, that helps because it it, you know, gets away from the phone. And we have this little place up in Upper Michigan my father built, which is a cabin. It's not a fancy place. And everybody wants to go there. Why? Because we don't have any television. Mm -hmm. We don't have any electronics everybody's in the water and canoeing and and it's a different part of their life so if you can do that if you can get away it really is easier you can do it back at home but it's it's just more difficult
0: yeah i mean that simple life is in in some ways a better life for times you know because yeah it it does get you to bond and it gets rid of all those extraneous distractions yeah you know you have to look each other in the eye and play board games and jump in the lake (laughs) um well you know a whole bunch of questions. Um, is, is there anything else maybe that you want to share with the listeners or something that I didn't ask that you, know, you want to tell us about?
1: Well, no, I just, uh, uh, as I say, I think that uh, this is the absolute best profession in the world. I can't imagine a better profession. People come to you, and for the most part, are really not well. There's pain in their life. Their life has become miserable. They don't come the first week they have pain. And they don't come looking for operations. And you can help them early on to live better with their disease, and then you can help them through a major surgical procedure which is going to change their life. Mm -hmm. And to have that opportunity is is just unbelievable. You can't imagine having a better profession.
0: It is special, and it's humbling. I think about that every day. Like the people put so much faith and trust in us. But and there's not many people in the world that, you know, get the training to be able to do what we do. Um, so that's, that's the reason I think you find so many orthopedic surgeons, you, know, you hear about people in medicine that are unhappy. But at least, you know, you look and orthopedics is usually at the top of the list as far as, you know, how happy they are doing what they do. Because they all tend to love, you know, taking care of patients and operating.
1: Oh, and the quality of life issues that Medicare puts out as far as the satisfaction of the patients, mm-hmm. uh, total joints overwhelm everything else.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you know, Lance, hole, you know, hip, you know, operation of the century.
1: You're right. I thought for a while that ophthalmology, you know, you, you can see, and then you get a cataract and you can't see, and then they can now fix that, and you can see again. I thought that would, even over Walmart's base, it doesn't come close. No. Not even close. I think it's because pain is so disabling Yeah, that people figure out how to get along without sight. One way, you know, it's not great, but, but compared to pain, that must be the issue. Yeah, because total journey plays will overwhelm anything else.
0: Yeah, the disability from arthritis is just so much greater. Right. Yeah. So, well, you know, I, I want to thank you for everything. Um, you know, not just sitting down today, but you know, for all of my training, for all of my education, for being a friend, um, and just for sharing this whole experience with all of the listeners. Thank well, it's you. been great. All right. Thank you. Um, Thanks for everybody tuning in. You've been listening to the Total Knee Tips and Pearls podcast with Adam Rosen and Dr. Cliff Caldwell. You've been listening to the Total Knee Tips and Pearls podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed so you'll be notified of future episodes. And please take the time to leave a review. It helps other people like you find the show. Until next time, stay safe.